This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon, listeners. My name's Erin Jones, and I'm the host of the Beyond Zero Emissions show today. Um, I hope you're all having a great Monday afternoon. We've got um, a packed show, as always. Uh, We're following on the theme that we started last week, which was around my recent trip to the fully charged electric vehicle show in the UK. So I've got um, some interviews that I did over there, and then we get on to some more local news towards the end of the show. So we'll push ahead because there's a lot to get through. And um, the first thing I'll start with is an interview that I did. Uh, the Tesla Owners Club via the UK did a great service uh at the um, Fully Charged show, which is actually at Silverstone. And Silverstone is, for most people will know, a um, probably the centre of motorsport racing in the United Kingdom. And it's a massive facility. So where the car parks were was actually quite a long way from where the venue was, probably four or five kilometres. So the Tesla Owners Club did a fantastic service where they ferried people in and out of the venue. And this is a chat that I had with one of those drivers. The Audio quality is not wonderful in, in the situation that we're in, but I hope you enjoy it. So did you do this last year as well? Yep. Yeah. This is uh, second year for me. Fantastic. Um, I'm third time doing this service at Silverstone because we also do it for the Silverstone Classic. All right. Um, which is a big classic car racing, so petrol racing right. cars, but they're the really old um, fancy cars that they still have. So yeah. we also provide it. A VIP transfer service for them throughout that. It's a much bigger event. It's the whole of Silverstone. Right. Over. And what um, what's the sort of response of those people? Are they is electric vehicle pretty new to them? Or? It's interesting because uh, I mean, obviously here you have the the demographic that's interested in pro EV in a, in a way, and that is the complete opposite. Is the petrol heads? Yeah. So there is a there is an element of some of the passengers are slightly hostile. Right. Um, I mean, not to the service or to us, but they were just like, oh, you know, EVs, all the usual things. You know, yeah. they, they don't have the range. They take too long to charge. There's no noise. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think for them also, they were very sensitive that they felt that it would preclude their hobbies of, yes. of racing. And, and we, you know, I was at pains to point out that at the end of the day, people still ride horses. People yeah. still, it's still classic cars are still going to be driven. If everybody's driving electric, the pollution level from a couple of races isn't going to be no, significant right. for the planet. Yeah, but um, people are strange like that, aren't they? Yeah, you know, yeah. I've had that same discussion many times. Yeah, but in general, a lot of them were quite 
were quite open to it. Um, and interestingly, I had the son of a very large petrol chain, which is one of the few uh-huh. private ones here, yeah. but they were a big sponsor of the of the event. Right. And it was their son who's just kind of coming to the age where he's going to start trying to take over the business and get into the business. Uh-huh. And he was saying that he's trying to push his parents to embrace electric charging at the four cores. Yeah. Because, I mean, he knows that the economics are... You know, fuel is not a money maker. It's no. the the rest of it, and yeah. EV charging is actually quite conducive to additional sales. So he's, but he says, yeah, his father is still, you know, very set in his ways and doesn't see electric vehicles as the as the future. You'd, you'd think in a business like that, that would be at the forefront of their yeah. minds because that must, you know, for anyone that's half switched on, they've got to see that that's going to be a massive business risk. Yeah. When you when your core of your business is Petroleum. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, my personal view, and you know, in, in my day job, I actually work for a lot of the big oil companies, mm-hmm. um, but from an IT perspective. But, you know, I, I think with the, the changeover to EVs, a lot of the petrol stations will disappear. Yeah. They'll be replaced by the home charging. Yeah. If I'm honest, you know, 90%, as, as you know, Robert and everybody always quotes, most, yeah. it is true, you charge at home most of the time and where you'll need the petrol stations will be on the long trips yeah. the, the, the but, fast but chargers is, to get from A to B yeah but, such a general perception isn't it yeah and, and I sort of say to people well what about your phone yeah. you know you're in the habit <laughs> you get home and yeah. you plug it in. most people plug their phone in every evening yeah. and don't think anything more of it and, and when we first had the iPhones, everybody mocked them because they only lasted a day. Mm. And they said, oh, my, my Nokia 62, whatever, yeah. 10, lasts a week. And I still have friends who use them, who go, yeah. oh, well, they last a week, so I use them. But, you know, everybody's got into the habit of charging their phone every night. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it is no different. Um, and I'm now almost getting to the point where I do think electric vehicle saves me time mm. in terms of charging. Because when I had the petrol car, Every time I was going on a on a trip, I you know remember at eleven o'clock at night that mm-hmm. we were out of petrol, yeah. and then I had to take a special trip to the petrol station, which takes 10, 15 minutes, yeah. five minutes to fill up, true, and then 10, 15 minutes back. So that's 35, 40 minutes, and quite often you did that a number of times a year. Whereas with this car, most of the time I'm not waiting for it to charge, even on long trips. I've got small children, so yeah. we're having a meal, so. On aggregate, we probably spend less time waiting for the car, you know, to charge effectively than we used to do going to the petrol station and back. Mm. Um, can I make a little interjection to yeah, support yeah. your point, though? <laughs> to support your point, though, uh, I live in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah, that's a great. My wife's Dutch. So, oh, okay. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. we go there a it's lot. It's basically yeah. after Norway. It's in Europe. Yeah. It's the land of the electric vehicle. Okay. Uh, they're everywhere, and uh, I don't have a, a charging opportunity. For the moment, I'm, I'm getting a house, so I'm, okay. I'm going to get that. But for the moment, I don't. But uh, reality check, I'm 15 kilometers away from work. So it takes me... So per day, I drive 30 kilometers. And yeah. I have a, a BMW i3 with 120 kilometers. Real world. Yeah. Real world. Actual range. I charge once a week. Yeah. And it's right next to where I, where I work. So even right. that shouldn't be an obstacle. Uh, charging at home is, of course, brilliant. Yeah, uh, is, is is the best you can get. But uh, but if not, even that is not an obstacle, it, yeah. provided there's and and there are a lot of charging points in the Netherlands. Um, so I've lived in because I've had the 
my first year I've had to be in, in, live in a B&B. So I've lived in three different places already in the Netherlands. And every single place I lived, there was a charger not more than 100 meters away from where I was. So I never have to go out of my way. And, and like gentleman says, uh, the time I lose, I, I bet my bottom dollar that I spent less time charging than I, than I would <laughs> on petrol stations. And there's another argument, which is even more absurd, is that yes, you save your 10 minutes or your 20 minutes not charging and then yeah. you go to work and, and spend another of those 20 minutes to work to pay for the fuel. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a double absurdity. Yeah. So why wouldn't you? I mean, I... I uh, sorry, I do, this isn't my interview. No, it's <laughs> fine. No, no, no. no. no I'm interested in just getting everyone's opinion. Yeah. It's a really big venue, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So last year we only had... Well, I say we fully charged, only had half of it. Yeah, and right. this year it's the whole thing. Um, so it should be I've still not been in um, but it should be interesting so uh, you should you should enjoy it if you haven't been here yeah um, and, and good luck with it all uh, yes thank you very much and thanks for pr providing the service it's excellent uh, uh, always happy to talk EVs <laughs> thank you good luck guys. take care cheers so we're here at Fully Charged Live. It's day three. It's been a packed program with a really big attendance. And one of the sessions that I attended this morning was all about racing and the impact that the new formats of racing for electric vehicles are going to have. And I'm very pleased to have with us here Alexander Sims, who is a Formula E driver. Welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to speak to you. So, how long have you been involved in racing generally? I, I presume you didn't start out in EV. No, so I mean, I've, I've been racing for the best part of 20 years now. Started off in go karts. Um, that, that over many years became more and more serious to sort of a European World Championship level. And then went into single seaters with the back then the dream of, of getting to Formula One. Um, that didn't work out and then went into sort of endurance racing in GT cars um, and joined up with BMW and yeah that, then the last six years with them um, has been a, a pretty cool transition through different classes and now thankfully you know able to, to drive in Formula E for, for BMW. Yeah so for, for a lot of our listeners that may not be familiar with um, car racing per se um, Formula E is the equivalent of Formula One in the in the EV world currently. Is that a, a, a correct description? Um, in the sense that it's the the highest category of single seater electric racing. Yes, um, quite honestly, though Formula E actively tries to be different in every single way right. uh, and so it, it's it's very very different to conventional racing that people may have seen on, on the tv the, uh, conventional motorsports um you know formula is is only in city centers it's, it's they're all street circuits um you have a limited amount of energy to complete the race so you have to do energy saving um, which creates so it's a lot more strategic in that yeah sense. it creates a lot of opportunities to absolutely go on different strategies of consuming your energy compared to the competitors, create overtaking opportunities, um, and yeah, the the motors, inverters, every, everything from the battery onwards basically is able to be developed by the manufacturers. So everyone has the same same chassis. It's a spec car as such in terms of the chassis, same tyres, same battery, but then beyond that, the motor inverter and things is then developed by the manufacturer right and so obviously you're in the bmw team 
But how many other manufacturers are competing in Formula E now? Uh, there must be eight, nine, I think. Yeah, eight or nine. Um, I mean, we've got... Uh, Nissan, Jaguar, Porsche coming in next year, Mercedes next year, we've got Audi, um, Mahindra, which is an Indian company, um, I think that's most of them, Neo, sorry, yes, the Chinese Chinese manufacturer, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's incredible to, to have so many different manufacturers, um, because that's something where, yeah, the likes of Formula One and other sort of high-end series are struggling with really to have the manufacturers justify the cost that it's mm. that um th- that are involved in in high-level motorsport because the relevance to their road cars and to the public are slowly diminishing yeah well and that was i suppose my question in our session earlier in yes. the um, panel discussion because it, it starts to become in my mind as a you know non-formula one kind of convert uh more and more irrelevant to to their business whereas it's going to become more and more relevant in the ev space uh, for manufacturers to come on board because presumably those developments that happen at that level will filter through to the the mass model production yeah absolutely um certainly with bmw uh we we have the same engineers working on the i3 and i8 drivetrains um, the same people who developed those have now come in and, and, and worked on our Formula E uh, setup and have developed our motor. And yeah, everything that they're learning in that process, they can then take back and put back into their road cars. Uh, because you know, with, with road car development, you know, cost and reliability is such such a big issue um, that that those are the mo- most um, the, sorry the, the main areas that the, that all the engineers work on. Whereas in Formula E, you know, performance is the absolute priority. Um, and so by giving the engineers that sort of a mindset to go and develop something with very different um, levels of importance on, on performance only, you allow them to then come up with, with new improved ideas, new ways of looking at things that actually then can, can, can then go back into parts of it, can go back into road car production as well and improve it. Mm. And so... This is obviously something you're quite passionate about from, from hearing what you were just speaking about earlier. You personally drive an EV and, and, and you've got a passion about sustainability. So when you saw kind of on the horizon um, EVs growing and um, production, was it kind of a light bulb moment when, I mean, how long ago did you think the E um, uh, Formula E would be in place? And was that kind of... A nice pivot to make for you personally, away from the trajectory that you had been on of, of, of aspiring to Formula One. Um, yeah, I mean to be honest, the Formula E uh, specific thing, I guess, it, it has been relatively recent, simply because it's only been around for five years. Um, whereas my sustainability interest has, I would say, has always been sort of bumbling along there in the background um, for most of my life, really. But um, I remember my mum got solar panels uh, back probably probably ten years ago now, yeah. um, which was pretty early in the the adoption adoption in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, and I got a hybrid because I was fed up with putting so much petrol in my car, thinking that a hybrid was a good solution. 
then quite quickly realised that it actually didn't change things a huge amount. You know, I was still sat at the petrol station once, twice a week, filling up with with petrol. Um, and that then, you know, you, you once you get into that mindset of wanting to eliminate that from your life, then electric vehicles become a a, a clear clear um, solution. Mm. And so, yeah, I got my first EV in 2012, started 2012, um, and yeah, just been driving EV since because it's. It's such a nice feeling on the road. No clunky engine, no noise from that. It's a, it's a peaceful, relaxing drive, but fast and exciting when you want it to be at the same time and, um, and good for the environment, so yeah. it's nice. And you mentioned that the, the racing circuits currently um, are city-based. Do you think that's an intentional aim to kind of showcase the low noise and the fact that these can be in, in kind of urban environments is that yes 100 it's a it's a, a fundamental part of, of formula e because as you say they're, they're quiet they're zero emissions um they're able to access parts of the city that the likes of formula one couldn't um because of the, the restrictions on on the noise, for example, you know, um, Formula One would love to have, to be able to race in some of the places that Formula E does, but they simply can't. Um, the governments and things wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. So it's uh, it's taking racing to the people, you know, rather than expecting them to travel uh, many many miles outside of cities. And so it sh- reduces the the environmental impact of people coming to watch a race. You know, normally the public uh, transport infrastructure and things is, is far better in city centres. So. The whole ethos of it is, is yeah, to, to promote sustainable racing, really. Um, yeah. But, yeah, they do a good job because at the same time, you know, people are going there to watch a, a race. And so mm. you've got to make it exciting and um, create rules that, that promote overtaking and the sporting aspect of it, you know, needs to yeah. be strong as well. So um, there's, there's a, obviously a dual message all the time. Yeah. So obviously at the moment, um, you know, you're racing in Europe, you're racing in the United States. Where else does the circuit go currently? Um, I mean, around most of the world, really. It's, it's an amazing calendar. Uh, we've been to Chile, we've been to Mexico, Hong Kong, China, um, Marrakesh in Africa. And then, yeah, quite a few races in Europe. Um, we, the season open was in Sa- uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the last rounds of the season are in New York. So it's, uh, it's pretty amazing to, to been to some of these places. Um, and, and promoting the message that, that Formula E gives. And, yeah, I think in, in the next seasons, they're just planning to go on to, to, to more and more cities so around the world. So we might see it out in Australia sometimes. So yeah, I think there's been discussion of maybe New Zealand. Um, yeah, right. yeah, I don't know. It's, it's exciting at the moment. Yeah, fantastic. Now, an interesting thing that we find in Australia, because uh, home solar penetration is really high, um, you know, it's something like 2 million homes um, and the whole population of the country is only sort of 24 million people. So it's pretty high mm-hmm. uh, solar penetration and, and most people are in a situation where they can have home parking. So the circular relationship with that comes is when you get solar on the roof, it starts to make sense to have a car. Absolutely. And so it's like solar, battery, car, or, or sometimes people go car, solar, but it's generally the other way. What... What are you finding here? You're based in the UK around uh, people having solar and then kind of making that switch to EV, or is it the other way around? What's your experience? Um, I think I think 
Well, I mean, solar panels are, I'd say, pretty accepted now um, in terms of in society. Certainly, yeah, five, ten years ago, it was something that uh, when people went to sell their homes, I think some people would see it as a, as a negative to have solar panels because the really? people considered them Didn't aesthetically unpleasing or something. Um, I'm pretty certain now that that is not the case anymore. Um, in terms of the, the cycle between solar first or EV first, I would say that there's, my gut feeling is there's not a, a, a set trend. Um, or that it's shifting, because certainly I on forums and things, I know of a lot of people that have got EVs first, and then that stems their interest into sustainability and where that electricity comes from, and then look, they look to get... Uh, battery storage and, and, and solar panels. Certainly now that feed-in tariffs from the government have, have ceased, um, having a battery to store the solar energy is a more interesting prospect. It's certainly obviously not a, a cheap thing still. Um, it's not accessible to every single person, but uh, the, the costs are, are coming down quite quite rapidly and uh, becoming a viable, viable option for, for many people. I guess um, EVs, you know, they're not desperately expensive to buy but um, their comparable petrol cars are, are probably that the EV is slightly more expensive um, and all the time those costs are going down but um, yeah nevertheless the people that buy EVs new are def- therefore by by the very nature of the, the cost side of things possibly more, more in, um, interested and more able to to buy the solar panels as, as well and yeah. battery storage. And we've had a lot of discussion over the weekend around you know, the, the legislation that's coming in 2020 around a much more tightening of, of emission standards and, and there's talk about a lot of manufacturers either withholding or waiting for those, those dates to kind of bring a lot more uh, models to the market. I don't know if you've got any inside running on that, but do you think we're going to see a, a lot more come in? That's certainly the perception when I'm talking to to people that know nothing about EVs, is, and they think they're so far off, and I'm kind of saying it's actually going to change a lot, lot quicker than you think. And within the next three years, even though I would say Australia is probably a clear five years behind, if, if not sure, more, sure. in model availability, um, you know, that landscape's going to actually change a lot more quickly than people realise. Yeah, I, um, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I have no, no real inside information, but it certainly seems to be be the case that it's only going one way, isn't it? You know, it's, it's not that manufacturers are ever going to start putting more money into developing internal combustion engine cars. You know, it's only going one way. They're reducing combustion engine development and increasing uh, plug-in hybrids and... and pure battery electric vehicle um, development so uh, I know you know the, the public information already out there is that BMW is only increasing their lineup and um, bringing more and more options to have all of their cars as either fully electric or plug-in hybrid um, in the years to come which to my mind is is an amazing situation to have you know to be able to look at a car and say you know which drivetrain do you want in that car and it doesn't look any different you know because in a way up until now some electric cars have been different for a reason to to you know show off that they're electric but i think for mass market interest um and adoption 
that you just want a nice normal looking car you know the, the average person um, and so to be able to to go there and seriously consider with the same looking car what suits your needs best whether it's a plug-in hybrid or a pure electric or in very very few cases a, a combustion engine car nowadays um, and that shift is only becoming more and more in favour of pure battery cars um, is, is a pretty good thing yeah when's your next race where are you my next race is two weeks uh, two weeks yesterday two so, weeks yesterday and where is it uh, in Bern in Switzerland right so okay capital city of Switzerland small little quiet city but um, yeah again another example of, of where Formula E has succeeded so well in, is that you know Switzerland's had motorsport banned for I want to say 50 years a long time anyway right, wow. um, and Formula E so it's really a could, could be quite a reinvigoration around this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, Switzerland's a, a fairly, fairly unique case to be to be honest. Most places do allow motorsport, but uh, yeah, Switzerland hasn't for for many, many years. And they they had the first Formula E race in Zurich, first motorsport race in, in Switzerland for, as I say, God, God only knows how many years that mm. has been. So um, it's uh, it's pretty amazing to, to yeah be racing in, in Switzerland in two weeks' time, and then we've got New York in July um, as the season finale. Great. Well, look, we hope we, that we do see some races in the Southern Hemisphere, and um, yeah, that'd be spe- nice. specifically that'd be really in nice. Australia or New Zealand, and um, if that's the case, we'll have to come and see you. Awesome. Look forward to it. Thanks very much. Cheers. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um, certainly motorsport's not generally my thing, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that with the... Um, motorsport and certainly around EV which is obviously what Formula E is is that technology that is developed at that level filters down into the cars that you and I will be driving in the years to come and also there's been a bit of um, you know it's kind of road to track to road you know the technology going backwards and forwards in terms of of how things are performing so that was um Alexandra Sims and he drives for the BMW Andretti motorsport team in the Formula E. So there was a little bit of background noise in that. We were sitting in a um, a lounge area at Silverstone and there were some noisy uh, non-electric vehicles out on the track so it was a little bit of background noise but I hope you enjoyed hearing that perspective. We're going to um, go to the other end of the spectrum now um, and continue our look at EV. And this is an interview that I did a little bit earlier in the year and we didn't have time to play it at the time. But I think it's important to um, kind of look at all the different aspects. And this is about the solar tuk-tuk. So I hope you're enjoying today's show. You're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show and my name's Erin Jones. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Erin Jones, and I'm really pleased to have on the line today Julian O'Shea. And Julian is the CEO of Unbound and is also the leader of Solar Took. So, Julian, tell our listeners what this is all about. So, the Solar Took Expedition Project was an idea that we had to really talk about electric vehicles and promote sustainable transport in a really fun and engaging way. So at the core of the project, we partnered with RMIT University in Melbourne to design and build a solar-powered tuk-tuk or modify a, a tuk-tuk, which is a three-wheeled rickshaw, one of the vehicles you see a lot in Asia. And then we drove it across the country to really engage people and the public and kids with sustainable transport. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. And I've seen you've you've actually um, you know certainly generated a lot of interest in the in the places you've gone, which is exactly what you wanted. And I suppose this type of vehicle is so unusual in, Austra- in an Australian context that it does really garner attention, doesn't it? It really does, and people love it. So um, kids find it really interesting. A lot of people that come from um, other countries where they have this vehicle get a nice dose of nostalgia. And for everyone else, it's just something a bit weird and wonderful to see on the road. Yeah. And so give us a bit of an outline of the expedition and, and where you started and the time frame, etc. Yeah, so we started at the start of 2018 and I was in Bangkok, Thailand, sitting in the back of a tuk-tuk and just thinking, these are so fun. Wouldn't it be great if we could have these in Australia? Um, but I've also got a strong sustainability background. Um, that's kind of where the idea started. So I reached out to some friends to say, hey, who'd be interested in chipping in and buying a tuk-tuk, buying a rickshaw? Um, we could bring it to Australia and make it an electric vehicle. Um, and in doing that, we realised that one of the reasons it's so hard to do and why we don't see them on the road is the complexities of complying with Australian mm. design laws and vehicle mm. safety and emission standards. Um, but we researched hard and we found one organisation based in Bangkok called the Tuk Tuk Factory and they build uh, tuk-tuks for the EU market. So we're able to use one of them as the base vehicle um, to start the project. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, kind of looking the other way, is there is there any thought going into actually taking what you've designed back into that predominantly Asian market where we see so many of these vehicles getting around? We have, and as part of this project, we've developed obviously the the solar system, we upgraded the batteries, we made modifications and we're entirely open sourcing those designs so anyone in the world that wants to use them we're happy to provide them for free as well as technical support and we've actually had people reach out to us from from quite a few places around the world to say this has applications in Sri Lanka, this has applications in Lebanon so we're really excited to share that and really nudge um, the industry to to make these vehicles far more common. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, this is a vehicle that you see in abundance in many of those Asian nations. And have have we got a kind of a handle on the sort of emissions that this type of vehicle in those type of environments, which, you know, can have pretty poor air quality, are producing in the current state? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've nailed it with the air quality as being the core issue. So those big Indian centres, anyone that spent time in those mega cities just knows how poor the air quality is. So there are some real shifts um, in this direction, which is fantastic. So the main, the number one uh, manufacturer of rituals in India is a company called Bajaj, and they're going to be releasing their first electric vehicle probably sometime in 2020. So there is some positive movements in this space. Yeah, great, because, um, you know, sometimes these these smaller vehicles... um can can be quite disproportionate in the amount of emissions that they give. Certainly, um, I remember reading something a little while back about um, I think it was you know the likes of lawnmowers and that type of smaller motor. But but proportionately, they're actually really heavy emitters. Um, so it's great to see these type of vehicles, and especially like we say, you know the the abundance of them and um, those environments that they traditionally work in, which which have poor air quality. So, well, that's really exciting that you've kind of taken something out of its native environment and improved it, and with the potential that it can actually go back and and um, be a great um, source and back in those um, environments that it's been traditionally used. That's right. But we also have the message for here in Australia. 
So I think in Australia, when we think of electric vehicles, we think of those really high-end, high-cost vehicles like a Tesla. Um, and what we wanted to do with the Solar Took expedition is to say that electric vehicles don't have to be this really high-end, expensive thing. So we deliberately picked the, the kind of smallest, the cheapest vehicle, really that's out there, the tuk-tuk, to show that if a vehicle like this can be really affordable and sustainable, and also the distance, that if we can drive from Melbourne to the Great Barrier Reef, which is exactly the journey we did in November, December last year, then people can get around their daily activities. And that was a big part of our message here in Australia. Yeah, exactly. And how did you find that that was taken up? I mean, obviously, um, you know, lots of our listeners are, are pretty familiar with and, and engaged in this space, but you would have come a lot across a whole lot of people who would have just thought, hey, what's that vehicle? What, what was their perception of what electric vehicles could do? Yeah, so it's quite varied. Um, but what we're trying to say is that this vehicle may not be your vehicle, but there are other options. So we'll kind of promote a lot of types of sustainable travel. So it doesn't have to be you go from zero to a solar-powered tuk-tuk. You know, hybrids are a far more efficient option. Taking public transport's a great choice for people that live in cities. Um, and we certainly did meet a few people that were sceptical about the, the concept particularly for their environments. And you know what? There are people that live in big, remote kind of um, farms and, and uh, stations that, you know, this particular vehicle is not a great choice, but there are more sustainable options. And I think that at the moment in Australia, only 1% of the, of the cars sold are electric. So that doesn't have to get all the way to 100% straight away, but trending in that direction would be a fantastic start. Yeah, exactly. And look, I think in the next year or so, we're going to be seeing so many more affordable models come on the market. Uh, and we all know that Australia is lagging behind in the uptake of, of electric vehicles. And I mean, one of the issues has been model availability and more affordable models. And hopefully as more manufacturers see Australia as a market um, that is worth pursuing, uh, that will change. And I think, I think it is something we'll actually see some fairly significant change in the next you know, two to three years. I think so too. In the Solar Took project, we really tried to help um, you know, have that conversation about trying to just accelerate that progress. Because you're right, once more affordable options, once more people kind of come around to the idea, it will move. And I think it could move fairly quickly. But yeah, we've got a long, long way to go. Yeah, exactly. So, so we, um, we know we've got the Melbourne EV Expo on March the 16th. And as you mentioned, you doing a display and doing a talk. What's after that for the project? To build on our success of the Australian leg of the Solar Took expedition, our plan for 2019 is to say, Australia, that's a good start, but where, where could we take this? And our goal is to drive an entire lap of planet Earth by solar-powered tuk-tuk. So we're going to be shipping the vehicle to Asia in, um, in the next couple of months, and then we're going to drive it from Singapore to Spain, we're going to drive it across the US and then across New Zealand back to Australia. So doing a full circumnavigation by solar-powered tuk-tuk. Fantastic. Oh, well, look, that'll be excellent. Well, we look forward to keeping in touch and um, maybe getting some updates as, uh, as your journey progresses. But that's excellent. And for people in Melbourne um, that want to get along to the EV, Melbourne EV Expo, March 16th, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show, 
or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. So moving on from our EV focus um, and that last segment was a recording that I did earlier in the year about that solar tuk-tuk project and their future plans as well. So just Google solar tuk and you can see where they're up to in their journey with Julian. So now we're going to move on to some more local issues um, and looking at a um, campaign that we've been following closely with the Save Western Port campaign led by Louise Page. Listeners, as you well know, we've been following very closely the Save Western Port campaign, which is around AGL's gas developments in the um, Western Port area in Victoria. And I've got on the line again Louise Page. So how are you today, Louise? I'm well, thanks, Erin. How are you? Yes, very good. Um, So we've been following this issue for a while, and... um, just let's get an update on where things are up to. Sure. Did you want me to just quickly run through the project itself? Yeah, so I think so. New Some listeners? People, yeah. Okay, yeah. So the, the plan is that, uh, well, AGL's plan is that they would like to set up a floating gas terminal in Western Port Bay. Western Port Bay is a Ramsar-listed area, so it's recognised internationally as being critical for migratory birds. It's also a UNESCO biosphere area. So um, it's a really important environmental asset for not just locally but for the world really because of the birds that come here. So uh, their proposal for a floating gas terminal would mean that LNG is imported via 300 metre long tankers that would come into Western Port Bay to unload into what is called an FSIU, a floating storage and regasification unit. So the LNG would be unloaded into this enormous, uh, it's really a ship that has this capability, like a factory, of regasifying LNG. So the, the gas, the factory ship would be sitting in Western Port Bay 24-7, so running the whole time. And then the unloaded LNG would be regasified in this ship and then... AGL would need to build a 55-kilometre-long pipeline from Crip Point to Pakenham so that they could transfer the gas into the main transmission line. So that's that's uh, the very basically the, the uh, plan that they have. One of the really Im- uh, key environmental concerns that we have is that the regasification process would require that 450, up to 450 million litres of water, seawater, would be sucked up into this factory ship in order to warm up the LNG so it can be um, regasified in effect. And then that water is spat back out into the bay, chlorinated and dead. So it comes in, you know, organism-rich and with everything it has in it, and then spat out dead. So that's one of the the main environmental concerns that we have. There are others. That's probably the main one. Um, so that's that's the proposal, and that started the first media release that announced that plan was back in August 2017. Since um, April 2018, which is when Save and Western Port started, we've been fighting this plan. Yeah. 
And so where are you up to now? Because I know you'd... Um, you know, you've done a lot of things, and including one of the last ones was to really, uh, you know, present a lot of the community support that you have to the CEO of AGL. So, how was that received, and and what's the current status? Yeah, it's been an interesting year all round. Actually, that that was one part of uh, a really quite monumentous year in terms of this project because just prior to that, sort of what led up to getting all these signatures was that all the federal candidates supported us. So they were all saying they're against AGL's proposal. So leading up to the federal election, every single candidate said no AGL in Western Port Bay. So that was a big moment. And and sort of from that, we then held a public meeting and that was we had 450 people attend, which was quite extraordinary for a little hall down on the peninsula to have that amount of people. And I was at that event. It was incredibly well attended. Yes, I mean, there was people spewing yes. out the doors on either side, wasn't there? Yes. So that that sort of was the the, the the moment where we said, well, let's let we we now have the politicians. They're aware of what's going on. Uh, we have their focus. So now we need to make sure that AGL are getting a sense of, of the amount of groundswell against them. And uh, so that evening we actually sent Brett Redman, who is the CEO of AGL, we sent him a message using great technology we have these days. And we followed it up because he was due in Melbourne recently for the Australian Energy uh, Conference week that was held at, in um CBD, uh, we said, look, you're going to be in Melbourne, um, along with Environment Victoria, we'd like to meet you to present what is now 17,000 signatures. And uh, he declined to come out and meet the rally that were there, the group of people who wanted to be there to, to hear him. But he did agree to a meeting between myself and the CEO of Environment Victoria, John O'Lenores. So we met him that morning before the conference and had a chat to him about the fact that they're not getting social licence. We know that social licence is one of Brett's own particular concerns, but also it's, it's a strategic goal. It was one of three strategic goals that AGL announced at the beginning of this year was to focus on social licence. So, of course, my point is, well, if that's one of your focuses for this year, then you're obviously not looking at Western Port because you've got an enormous opposition here. Uh, so that was last month. That was just a month ago now, pretty much. Uh, so we left that meeting. Well, we've, we've given them the message. They know where we stand. So the, the ball is in AGL's court to, to show that a, that they are listening, as Brett Redmond says that they are, um, and that they are really honestly talking about social licence, not just saying it and not following it through, and that they can show some leadership in the energy sector and not be importing gas. Mm. Yes, exactly. So... So now that meeting was, was held and because it was looking at one time like it was almost going to be a bit of a rubber-stamping exercise. Yes. But it now did. we've got a little bit more meat that, um, that yeah, they're going to go through. Yeah. We certainly do. So 
the EES that that uh, they were required to do an EES was announced last year. So uh, the latest is the very latest, which is only a week or two old, is that uh, there has been another delay. So now they were due to be. Uh, their schedule was that they would be submitting their EES around September of this year, so not very far away at all. We got notice very recently that they are now putting that off until it will be around about April of next year. That's the current um, sort of schedule that they're looking at. So certainly they won't be looking at finishing much before then, or getting their, that is finishing their studies and getting their EES in. So that will be done then and then there's the usual time that's allowed for um, the public to make submissions, etc. And AGL haven't even yet made a financial decision on this because they won't be doing that until the, after the EES has been submitted and a decision made. So we're now looking at well into the second half of next year. Mm. And, you know, one of the things I think certainly in the climate movement over the last decade or so is every delay is useful in the fact that renewables becomes a better and better proposition. Yep. I'm not sure how much you've been seeing in the news lately, but it is the, it is daily the change in the energy market. You know, mm. it's it's so fast moving and it's especially around gas because uh, I think the the decision to move away from coal is, I know there are still examples where it, this is not being followed through, but it's almost a given, I think, that coal is gone. Um, and so then gas was seen as the transition, but people are now thinking, well, we're not even so sure about that. We want the renewables. So mm. Even though uh, gas is seen as the... Well, here's, here's an example. So if gas is seen as a tr transition phase, then why on earth would you be doing any more infrastructure at all? So to say bringing import gas to build pipelines and things to make that happen, why would you do that at this time? It makes no sense at all. No. Everybody wants to be going to renewables. Um, so I think the... Uh, for us to get an, of pretty much another year is fantastic because things are changing all the time and I think there is such a global movement against everything that's happening. You've got Extinction Rebellion, you've mm. got um, the success here about Lock the Gate and, and milestones that have been made there. There's so much happening that, you know, in two months' time things could be different the way things are headed. Yeah, exactly. And and as you um, outlined at the start of, of our discussion, you know, this is a, a really environmentally sensitive area um, and the fact that this was going to proceed with, with pretty minimal um, detail of, um, you know, exactly what's going on That's from right. an ecological standpoint in this area um, was, was pretty frightening proposition. So at least... We've got that, and then we've, you know, on on one hand and on the other hand, we've got the market um, influences and changes, and and as you say, you know, in a couple of months, um, the whole economics of it. Um, but at least we've got twelve months, and then you know, the economics is an, is another factor. So yeah, and I think that the economics is a really important thing because I think one of the things that I always try and remember to tell people is that it doesn't add up. You know, it's yeah. not even. 
if some people could say you're just being nimby. Well, you know, you might say that, but I can give you 10 other reasons why this shouldn't go ahead and it's nothing to do with it being in our backyard as in the peninsula. Um, the economics absolutely don't stack up because Australia is the largest exporter of gas. We're talking about importing it. So A, that's going to keep the prices up. All the analysts say we start import, importing and the prices cannot come down. So uh, we're paying some of the highest prices in the world for gas and we're the largest exporter. Even if, you, if we take out the renewable section, which we know we have to head that way, if we just look at the gas market and just look at what's happening right now, it is just so ridiculous that we don't have our own reserve here in Australia. Mm. Well, apart from WA, yeah. we don't have our own gas reserve for locals to use. Mm. It is extraordinary. Yeah, it's a real policy blight. It um, is. But look, Louise, we probably better wrap up. But I'm I'm really pleased that. Um, there's been this additional time and it kind of puts a whole new spin on things. But we'll definitely keep in touch and see where things go to. But I, I think that's um, wonderful news. Yes, thanks, Erin. And thanks for keeping in touch. If anybody else wants to look at any more information about it or know how to um, find out, stay in touch with us, they can subscribe through our savewesternport.org. And that means they'll get newsletters which go out around about every two weeks. It depends on, you know, how much is happening, but it's generally around every two weeks. Okay, that's fantastic. So if people want to look at that, that's savewesternport.org and you can get all the information there. That's right. Okay, lovely. Okay, thank you, Louise, and um, we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much, Erin. Bye-bye. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show and I'm pleased to have John Grimes on the line. John is the CEO of the Smart Energy Council. Welcome, John. Oh, my pleasure. Now, predominantly what we want to highlight today is the Victorian Solar Rally that is on Thursday this week. Um, and we'll just get you to give um, a bit of a background and some details about what's going on. Well, the, the Victorian Government, as an election promise, came out with a really good policy, 650,000 solar rebates to help Victorians cut their power bills and help the environment at the same time. But the implementation of the policy has been a dog's breakfast. First, they've made it so difficult for ordinary people to access the rebate with a whole lot of unnecessary bureaucratic layers, including facial recognition technology apps that 70, 80-year-olds need to download to their smartphones and try and use in order to actually get the, the rebate. The rebates have become harder to access they're winning a golden ticket in Willy Wonka's chocolate <laughs> prize. you know. <laughs> so, so that's the first thing. It's really disenfranchised people and left people out. The second thing that's happened is the number of rebates has not been 650,000 divided by 10 equals 65,000 per year. It's been a much lower number than that. It's actually been a lower number than business as usual for the solar industry in Victoria. Now, no-one's going to buy a solar system if they think they're going to get free, free government money. So what's happened is that, the, that basically the scheme ran out in April, no installations between April and the 1st of July, early July, and then when the scheme reopened on the 1st of July, all of the rebates went in a 60-hour period. Within a couple of days, all gone, closed, finished up. Yeah, I remember what? that. There was sort of a stampede, wasn't there, and yeah, then the, gone. The stampede. Mm. That's right. So, so, so there's a huge imbalance between demand and supply. Now, what that's meant for the industry is since April, 
the industry has come to a complete standstill. There are literally hundreds of Victorians around the state who have already lost their jobs. These are roofers, they're electricians, they're apprentices, they're small family businesses in the solar, solar industry. And so the mismanagement of the scheme means they've all been put out of work. And now, not only are they letting people go, but the companies themselves are starting to close down, go into bankruptcy and actually having to, to let, you know, in some cases, the family homes on the line. So this has been a $100 million policy with all of the best intentions that's been badly implemented, left Victorians disenfranchised and left the industry actually reeling. So, so there's already been a 40% downturn in the number of installs in Victoria as a result. And, and, and we're calling on the Victorian government to urgently, please, increase the number of rebates. Even if they cut the number of the, the dollar value in half and had twice as many rebates, it wouldn't impact budget and it would allow the industry to start rolling again. I mean, like you say, it's kind of a bit mind-boggling because the policy sounded, you know, pretty promising um, and what the Victorian government's done in lots of areas seems promising, but this just seems completely counterproductive. And, you know, we've pleaded with the Minister uh, and with the government. We've been talking to the say, look, this is building, this is a major problem. Please, just, you know, we're, we, we all want a good policy outcome. We want the best for Victoria and the people of Victoria. Uh, but, you know, when we met with them last week, it was essentially a case of read my lips, there will be no change to the program. And that really meant that, look, we've got no other option. We have to call this out. Jobs are on the line. You know, there, there, are, there are vulnerable people that are being uh, absolutely messed about by this. You know, actually customers who want to get... I'll tell you one story. You know, one of our members had a 90-year-old customer in tears because the application process was so difficult. I've spoken to people... Who, who, you know, you know, they're trying to get this facial recognition software to prove that it's the same photo in the in a passport. So in a passport, you're not allowed to wear glasses. So they take their glasses off. This is a you know, 70, 80 year old woman looking at the phone. Then she can't see the phone, mm. right? She's never taken a selfie in her life. Mm. So, so, so what's being built is completely inappropriate. We have a national scheme, a Commonwealth government scheme, that is perfectly sound has rolled out 2 million rebates across the country. Victoria had that in place for, for, for years. We're saying, get rid of the unnecessary red tape. Enfranchise people. Let people get the solar rebate and let the industry get back to work. Yeah, and look, obviously, you know, we need... I mean, Australia has a reasonable amount of solar penetration and has been going on a, a good road, and we need more of that. And the trouble is, what you're describing here with a lot of these businesses, and a lot of them are not big businesses, they're sort of mum and dad type businesses, no one is going to enter this field with, with so many changing rules, and if these businesses do go to the wall, you know, who's going to re replace them? Who's going to feel like they want to go into the, to this industry? Well, worse than that, you know, the, the 350,000 Victorians that already have solar on the rooftops, if these local, good, long-term businesses go out of mm. business, then they have nobody to provide warranty support for the systems they have on their rooftops. They're going to last the next 20, 25 years. Mm. This is a big issue. It's big for the people of Victoria. And, uh, you know, we can do so much better. It would require a minor change. You know, the, the government needs to get on with it just fix the problem. Yeah, exactly. OK, so what can people do to, to, to move this forward? We've blown the whistle. We've said to the, to, the, to the government, this is a big political issue and you need to take, you need to listen to the industry and to the community. 
And so we are rallying on the front of the steps at that Parliament House, Victorian Parliament House, Spring Street, at 10.30am on Thursday morning. And we need to pack the place out. If three and a half of us turn up, then the government will say, well, that, that's just not an issue. If we can get 500, 700, 1,000 people there, then watch us make some noise. And, and I think we'd be doing it for the right reasons. So yeah. vulnerable people want to cut their power bills, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and for the industry to make sure that we've got a good, solid, quality, long-term industry supporting good, quality, long-term outcomes for solar in Victoria. Oh, exactly. And, I mean, solar is, is such a good story and so many people, um, you know, have really experienced such good benefits by going with solar. So we, we, And as you say, the really important issue about those existing businesses that are going to be around to service those warranties. So, look, for some of our listeners that, um, you know, may not um, be able to get into the city, what other ways can they kind of bring bear weight to this argument? Contact your local MP. Put a phone call through. doesn't matter if they're, if they're Liberal, National, whether they're Labor or Greens. Reach out to the policymakers to say this isn't working. To, for, for a government program to put $100 million on the table for this year and for the net outcome to be that virtually nobody can get a rebate, right? Willy Wonka looks better than, than, than your chances, right? And, and, and for it to destroy the industry and, and actually have thousands of people across the state laid off, I'm talking to business owners who are so depressed that I'm passing them the contact details for Beyond Blue. Mm-hmm. I know of several that have already gone into liquidation, one that employs 40 Victorians. Wow. So this is just the start of a major stampede. So if the outcome of a $100 million program is that kind of carnage, well, then I think we've got, we've got a real problem in the state of Victoria. Mm. Well... Yeah, this, it's, this is really important. So, people, uh, that is this Thursday, the 25th of July, meeting at 10.30am on the steps of the Victorian Parliament in Spring Street. So, really important that you get along. If you want any more details or if you want to write those details down, go on to the Smart Energy website, which is smartenergy.org.au, and I'm sure if you look at the events, you'll see all the details there. Or as John mentioned, um, if it's not feasible for you to get into the city at that time or if you're listening from um, further afield, uh, make sure that you contact your local member. Uh, This is so important. And and the thing is, you know, the intent is actually to encourage solar. So really, you know, we need to get back to the intent of what this policy is meant to do and and get rid of these um, bureaucratic problems. Absolutely right. So really grateful for the support and looking forward to making it a huge day. Yeah, excellent. Okay, appreciate your time today at Short Notice, John. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. So really important that people get along and support that initiative. That is the Victorian Solar Rally on Thursday morning, 10.30. Get onto the Smart Energy website if you need more details, but but really important. I hope you've enjoyed the show. We've um, touched on quite a few things, the EV, uh, Save Western Port, and, of course, is it that uh, you just heard John Grimes, who is the CEO of the Smart Energy um, Council, talking about the problems with the rollout of the solar rebate scheme in Victoria. Next up, we've got communication mixdown. So I hope you enjoy that. And um, until I'm next on the air, I've been Erin Jones, and this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. Thanks very much.